Let's go ahead and get started here. <laughs> the voice of authority. Listen to how well they respond. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, you better say it. You better say it. Let's go. Uh, Steve, we'd like to get started now. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. No. <laughs> Come on, let's, uh, let's uh, take a moment and just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get, get kicked off tonight, uh, this morning. Lord, in Jesus' name, we just thank you so much for all that you're doing in our midst and, um, you know, being restored by Christ. We've been first reconciled to the Father. What a gift. And it overflows and has implications in our interpersonal relationships with one another and every other image bearer so that we might be reconciled to one another. And so, Lord, we do recognize that there's an enemy at work, um, that we are indeed wrestling against demonic forces, seek to divide, um, that continue um, to polarize us. And so, Lord, we want to lean into the tension. We want to be equipped. Um, we want to be, as it were, um, ambassadors and um, agents of reconciliation. We've been reconciled, so who better than us to go forward and bring a message and an embodiment of reconciliation. So, Lord, use us as your instruments. Um, today, the room is smarter than anybody at the front. And so, God, collectively, would you speak to us and into us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get started. Before we give sort of our outcomes, I want to frame the conversation a little bit. Um, one of the things that happens whenever we start talking about diversity, racial inclusion, empowerment, that type of thing, we usually go back to black and white. And I want to frame that. And, and one of the reasons that we do that is because that is a conversation that, by and large, maybe not here in this room, so I'm making a general statement about our country. By and large, that is a conversation we don't want to have. It's a conversation we're uncomfortable with. It is a history that we do not want to acknowledge. And so half of what, what needs to happen in the conversation is we have, if we can have that conversation, we can start there, then it becomes sort of like a Pandora's box. Then we can bring out other issues that, that sort of bear, like gender equality, and we can start having a lot of conversations, but for us, what we do is we go back to the age-old wound, start there, and then let it work its way out, because the principles are transferable in other dialogues. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I just want to frame that a little bit, because a lot of times people are like, oh, we're back to the black-white thing again. Well, unlike what has been done in Germany, by and large, if you go and visit Germany, they're not embarrassed of the Holocaust in that way. You can go and find many signposts all throughout cities that, that point to that history reminding them of not to do not to go there again does that make sense so for us i mean we're just now getting to the point where there is a civil rights museum there are places in the south that are now i mean we're still debating on whether the confederate flag ought to be flown i mean so there's there's a lot going on monuments being removed all of these kind of things that that are are still very difficult and and are loaded weapons in this conversation we've never dealt with systemic racism in our country by and large the church has fallen short in my estimation, and here's why. We'll, we'll have some comments at the end. And so here's, here's how the church has fallen short in my estimation. Because I told Glenn Burris, I said, if I ever see you try to hold a reconciliation meeting where you want to wash somebody's feet again, that is not acceptable any longer. Because what we've done is, is we've gotten together, sang a few Christian songs, got a few leaders to represent and repent to one another, and then did not go out and try to do justice. There was no reformation, right? So we would say of people that have repented that there would be fruits of repentance that accompanied that, that would bring transformation and give evidence of a changed heart. Does that make sense? And so for us as a church, it is imperative that we not just 
feel bad about things, that we not just say we're sorry and we repented and feel guilty if you're a white person, this type of thing, but that we actually go forward and say, okay, where in my sphere of influence, where in the people that I'm coming into contact with, is there injustice? Are people being marginalized? Do we not see people at a table that should be? And do I ask the question, who's missing? And so that's why we start where we start, okay? Go ahead, Jeff. So Keith and I uh, just talked briefly about what we would love to see as outcomes of this. And uh, I had one, and he had one. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give mine real quickly, and just a brief little bit of background. Uh, I grew up in Sweet Home, Oregon, a little logging town uh, in the Cascade Mountains in Oregon, all white. Uh, we did have one black student in my high school. He was an exchange student from Ethiopia. Uh, that was it. And uh, I went from white sweet home to Northwest Christian University in Eugene, Oregon, all white. Uh, graduated from there, did ministry in Eugene for a little while, moved to Spokane. Spokane is? White. Very white, yeah, 93% <laughs> white, yeah, yeah. Except yeah. for doing Hoop Fest, yeah. which yeah, is the fest, world's yeah. largest three-on-three yeah. -three basketball yeah. tournament. Yeah, then it yeah. colors up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But very, very white. And about 25 years ago, roughly, I, I realized uh, that I was living in a white bubble. And uh, I did not have I, – I had acquaintances of color, but I had no friends of color. You know what I mean? And uh, so I made a very deliberate decision to – move toward the other. I think that was the, the language you just used, mm -hmm. and I loved it because we use that in our church all the time, move toward the other. And uh, a guy named Rodney McCauley, I met him at a thing, and <laughs> I just said, uh, hey, can I take you out to lunch? And we got lunch, and over lunch I said, would you be my friend? Mm. I, <laughs> I need a friend. And, uh, and I asked him in that lunch, I said, tell me what it's like for you to live as a black man in white Spokane. And that was the start of my education. And uh, light started going on for me. And uh, from that time forward, I started reading a lot. Uh, we're going to give you a book list here. And, and, uh, I, and I just also started reaching out to people of color and becoming friends and listening. And my life got richer and richer because of it. It was really, really important. So that, that's just a little bit about my background. So here's my, here's my deal. In, in Spokane, I'm, I'm part of a huge diversity deal and, um, uh, that, that I help lead and, and – um, and my goal there is kind of the same as for this. I want to engage white Christians in this conversation. Uh, I want to engage white Christians so that they become allies with our friends of color and are standing with them. So often, I think Keith will address this, I think so often people of color feel like, yeah, we're raising our voice about this issue, but where are you guys, right? And when are you going to come stand with us? And, and so I want to engage them in the conversation and then also in the work for justice. So we see two sides to this relationship and action, relationship and action. So those are the two, that's, that's kind of what I'm going for. Well, part of what, the only reason I'm even here is because I had had the conversation and said I will not do another workshop of this nature without a white counterpart to begin to stand with me and not have to show that a burden at times of trying to convince people that there's a problem that they don't think exists. Yeah. And so um, I, I didn't want to have to do that. Um, my, my outcomes are pretty simple. Um, they're threefold. One. Um, I want people of color, um, people that are marginalized, not just black, but people that are left out, people that aren't um, the dominant culture, to be seen, heard, and valued. Um, that's it. Um, and I think part of when I hear, and the reason I say seen is because one of the classic 
um, Christian colloquialisms is to say, I don't see color. To, to not see color, to be colorblind, is to not see my distinction, is to not even see me. I'm a distinct human being with a distinct narrative, um, with a history, with an experience, with contributions. So to sort of blend everybody together does not allow for the diversity that we want. We want to be diverse. We, don't, we want each of us to be celebrated in our unique design as image bearers. And so for me, just to be seen, heard. Um, I think heard is really important because, um, you know, a lot of times I think when stories are told, um, from, from I think it was Dr. Laberton in his work, The Dangerous Act of, of Loving Your Neighbor, um, talks about, he frames a conversation around the Good Samaritan and, and this idea that all of us have a neighborhood or a place that we come from, and our neighborhoods can be very confining. Uh, if you grow up, like, and, I, and we talk about this a lot uh, in this work, when you come from a certain environment or a certain narrative, uh, uh, environment that or culture, it begins to define certain things about you that you don't even know. Like, for instance, if you grew up in Boston, then of course you're a Boston Red Sox fan, right? You're Catholic. All of these things are assigned to you because of your neighborhood. And then, then you have a worldview that is confined by your environment. And then when any new information tries to break its way in, you can't receive it. It, it is counter it is countercultural to you, and it, it can't possibly be true because in your neighborhood, this is what we understand to be the world. And so for me, I want people to engage in conversation and have real honest dialogue. And we'll talk about listening for understanding with one another in just a minute. But that's, that's just what I want. I want to be seen, heard, and then valued as a human being. I want black skin, black lives to be valued. And when I see, I just saw... Uh, on Facebook, a real time last week, a woman who was at least eight months pregnant being manhandled and thrown around by a security guard in a mall trying to mace her. And I thought, where is that? I mean, she, where is that even? I, I, I can't even, I mean, it's, it's so incredulous, I can't even find language for it. I sat there and watched it three or four times just to try to see how he felt so threatened by an eight and a half month pregnant woman that he would try to throw her down on the ground and bring trauma to the baby and to her. And it's just when you assign labels to people, and, and this is in, in that book as well, when you assign labels to people, then you have dehumanized them. Once you have dehumanized them, then any atrocity that you could commit to them seems plausible. Does that make sense? Okay. So yeah, just real quickly, um, very briefly, a theological basis for the discussion. I, one of the things I believe, I'm sure Keith believes this too, is that Christians ought to be the leading voices in this discussion, that the church ought to be leading the way in reconciliation and diversity. Sadly, we've often lagged way behind. Correct. And I think, uh, just I'll just mention a couple of verses. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but of course, Genesis 1 starts with, uh, we're all created in the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer. And uh, I quote that verse in my church, and I say, because of that, black lives matter. And white lives matter, and red lives matter, and Asian lives matter. Everybody matters, right? Because yeah, we're all we're all that's created right. in the image of God. And uh, then the, that's the first chapter of the Bible. You go sort of the end of the Bible, Book of Revelation. We're going to gather around the throne, Revelation se seven nine. What's it say? It says every tribe, that's every right. tongue, every right. every nation, every right. race, every ethnicity, all around the throne of God. Right. And so we start there, we end there, and in between, uh, the Bible is packed with Absolutely. racial tension. Uh, in fact, the biggest single problem for the early church was Jew and Gentile. Yeah, it was a racial issue. Absolutely. Acts 15, 
the Jerusalem con conference was all about that racial issue. Yeah. Galatians was written to address a lot of that issue. And there were theological overtones to it, you know. But Paul says very clearly, Galatians chapter 3, he says, For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, uh, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ. And uh, that's what we're aiming for, and the church ought to be leading the way in that. So that theological deal. The other thing, just Hold on, Joe, just yeah, a second. Yeah, For those of you that want to go deeper on the, theolo the theological aspect of it, Steve Overman, a good friend of mine and theologian, yeah. has done a great job at our fall conference. He has a work that he put together that's not complete, but it'll get you started, and you can unpack and go from where he sort of jumps off in the theology of race and that type yeah. of thing. I think it would be a great resource for you because if you don't educate yourself in the conversation, I think we do more harm than we do yeah. good. So you can just see Steve yeah. is sitting right here. But Steve, would you raise your hand so yeah, they can just – Yeah, wave Steve. Yeah, so done Steve's a great really, job. really, really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and uh, this book that's uh, on your seat, The Color of Compromise, is a book about the church's complicity in the racial issues in our nation. So what we're saying is we ought to be leading the way. This book says we haven't yeah. done a very good job. Yeah. Yeah. There's another book called Divided by Faith, too. Yeah, that's an excellent really book. really good book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. one other thing here real quickly um, the, uh, that we talked about is that uh, the, the racial conversation, you alluded to this, the racial conversation uh, is often a very tense one to have. And um, people, uh, it's, it's, it, it, el it elicits real raw emotion mm -hmm. in people. Um, just a quick example. So uh, I've been speaking on this in our church for a number of years now. And here's a fascinating thing. Um, when I talk about race, I get more crap, I get more angry emails, I get more feedback than any other subject I talk on. And I do it in, in the kindest possible terms. I mean, yeah, it's, you do. it's very, very loving. And people like, so uh, we had uh, Brenda Salter McNeil. Do any of you know who Brenda is? Yeah, she's... Uh, She's fabulous, and uh, her book is, is on this list you'll get, uh, Roadmap to Reconciliation. And we had her on Mother's Day last year. And uh, so Brenda wanted to just connect with the audience. You know, it's Mother's Day, like make a little Mother's Day connection. She says, hey, I was in Mother's Day. I was just watching this video, Mothers of the Movement, you know. And, uh, and she just cited, you know, like the Colin Kaepernick's mom and, you know, so, so on and so on. And when she said Colin Kaepernick's name, that's all. She did not make a comment about whether she liked him kneeling or, you know, not. She just mentioned his name, and there were people in the room just turned her off. Did not hear the – uh, the reason I know that is because they came to me. Yeah? Of course and they I did. Yeah, of course they did, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I followed that up the next week. We have 60 people on our staff, and in a staff meeting, uh, I just – I told them that little story, and I said, let me ask you all a question. I said, uh, our staff, I said, how many of you – uh, disagree with what Colin Kaepernick did, kneeling during the national anthem. And half my staff raised their hand. I said, how many, and there were a couple comments um, from the other half. Uh, then I said, how many of you agree? And half of them raised their hand. And I said, here's the thing. I, I really don't care whether, which one you raised your hand on. What I care about is that you can talk about it with each other, that you can go to the other person and say, why do you think that way? Explain to me why you feel that way. Help me understand your position and have a conversation about it. Good. And so we're going to take a quick poll right now. How many of you agree with what Cal Colin Kaepernick did kneeling in the national anthem? Can I see your hands? How many of you, how many of you agree? Hold them up loud and proud. Come on. Okay. 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 Oh, you, oh, you didn't know? Okay, Colin Kaepernick was quarterback for, uh, the, for, for the Stanford yeah, 49ers. And, uh, and several years ago, he began kneeling during the national anthem. To, to, yeah, he took, took a knee, a knee to protest. What was he protesting? 
Yeah, the, he, 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 police brutality. he was protesting police brutality against young black men was what he was doing. He was drawing attention to the plight of people in his race. And, uh, and he made very clear, he even said, he says, uh, he says, I'm not disrespecting our military. I'm not right. disrespecting uh, our police. I'm just saying there's a problem in our country and let's address it. Okay, th that was his deal. So, so how many of you agree with that, that he was final? Okay, how many of you disagree? It's okay to disagree, okay? Now look at, you guys disagree? I'll talk with you later. Anyway. You, he asked if you disagree with the protest. Yeah. I disagree with the protest. Here's why I disagree with the protest. Yeah. I was a Marine for 10 years. So I don't like anything that defaces or defames the flag. I've had friends come home with coffins draped with flags and flags presented to their families. Right. Here's the deal. I didn't like the form of the protest. I agreed with the substance yes. of the protest. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. So I agree with what he was protesting about. I just didn't agree with the way we went about doing it. Yeah, and see here, we disagree about that. See? Because I, I supported him. So you would assume all yeah. black people agreed. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, see? No, I didn't. But I, I, but again, as a soldier, I represent his yeah. right yes. to protest peacefully and lawfully. Yeah. And that's secured by our Constitution. And he should have been able to continue to work yes. and do all of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a complex person. <laughs> <laughs> I, on the other hand, am very simple. So, uh, <laughs> I, but I use that illustration yeah. to say it can be a tense conversation. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I had a lady come up to me after a service recently, and and uh, and she brought up this thing with Colin Kaepernick, you know, and she says I just disagree with it and. Mm. I said, tell me why. She explained why. And all I asked her was, I said, have you talked to a person of color? She said, no, I haven't. And I said, well, go do that because you might get a different, a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. That's all. That's right. That's right. That's my in group. That's right. I think one of the things that makes it difficult for African Americans and people of color to want to have the conversation is white fragility. Because the whole time I'm trying to give my experience and what my narrative is, I got to monitor your feelings in the conversation the whole time. So I, I can't even give full vent to the frustration or hurt that I'm feeling because I'm constantly monitoring how you're feeling because there's white guilt and I wasn't a racist. I'm not a racist. I got I to gotta deal with all of that. <laughs> I can't even get out my story. I can't. You, you can't even really hear it because we're kind of so a lot of that because what you're asking of an African-American or, or anybody that's been marginalized, you're asking wh when they tell their story, they're literally unzipping their soul and allowing you to sort of it's sacred. It's in that moment. It's not even about you. Can, I mean, in that moment, you have to just be present. While they're unzipping their soul, it's not your experience. You didn't come from that. You, I got you. It's not about you in that moment. They're telling you 
offer and offering you something of great value, by the way. That we, it's like, okay, you're not, you're not worth it. So, so then, then, so then, now watch this. As, as an American culture, you know, you haven't listened for over 200 plus years. So, yes, we burn our communities down. Yes, we turn over cars. Yes, we don't like the police. No, we don't trust them because you have not listened to us. And Martin Luther King dealt with this in the 60s, 67 and 68, when they asked him about riots and the burning of neighborhoods. He said, this is the language of the unheard. So when you see it, you're like, well, why are they doing that? Well, because we've tried for generations. I mean, I can I remember having to police Los Angeles after the Rodney King. Now I'm a Marine having to police our citizens that look like me who are burning our neighborhoods because a black man was mistreated and could not get justice. And so our community, so I'm standing there at midnight with an M16 charged with lethal force if necessary to our own citizens in that moment because our country hadn't listened and I was put in that position. So it's difficult to engage a conversation when you don't feel like you have an audience and an empathetic one at that. Uh, in the back, he was he had his hand up three times. Yeah, no, I mean, we agree. Church has been complicit. I think yeah. the, I think history will record. I mean, think about it. Slaves were, those that were slave owners went to church every Sunday. And they heard, a W.E.B. Boys would say they heard a different gospel. They heard a gospel that made it legal, made it moral, their moral responsibility, in fact, to a certain degree. So, absolutely. So, you and I have to make sure that we... Um, have a complete gospel first and understanding of the gospel. This is why I think Steve's, Steve's important, his work is important in the work of others, not just what he did for our workshop. But the, the, the idea that you would go back and actually redig a well called the theology of race is important. Next guy right there.
I want to give you a couple of things. L- let's get through the notes a little bit, and then we're going to save the bulk of our time for dialogue. Does that make sense? So hold on. I, I'm glad there's vigorous, and, and I'm glad it's just not a quiet room that we want to get into it. Because normally, I mean, four years ago we had this conversation. That first of all, there were five people in the room, and nobody wanted to talk. So this is good. But there's a couple things we want to get through to get you some tools and get you some understanding maybe, and then we'll get to some dialogue. Does that make sense? Come on, Joe. Daniel Hill, in his excellent book, White Awake, Mm -hmm. um, uh, defines white privilege as the ability to walk away. (laughs) And uh, he said, uh, and Keith, you can speak to this personally, but, you know, for me, when I engage in this issue, uh, if it gets too hard, if it gets too difficult, if I get uncomfortable, I can always, I can always check out, go back home to my comfortable world, and I can tell you stories about that. Keith, on the other hand, for you? Mm-hmm. It's, it's constant. It, I pastored a church in Beaverton, Oregon, which Randy, our new, uh, newly elected senior pastor, and, and we, he and I co-pastor together. And we've had vigorous conversations about what it means for me to pastor that church and what it means for him to pastor it. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Yeah. I'm constantly monitoring, qualifying, translating how much blackness they can handle. <laughs> Literally. I mean, Theresa, every time yeah. I'm on the stage that yeah. you've seen me, I'm measuring in my mind how much of me I can leak out. Whereas he gets up, and I said to him, I said, you've never had to wake up one day of your life and think, hey, I'm white. Because the world accommodates itself to whiteness. Right? So for me, I wake up every day going out into the world knowing I'm black. First Mm -hmm. and foremost, I'm a black male. And that Mm -hmm. there is, at times, a target on me that isn't on my counterpart. I educated my son at 16 when he got his license how to handle a traffic stop. Put your mm-hmm. license in the head rider. Put your insurance where you can reach. Ask for permission. Say yes, sir, and no, sir, and still do not be safe in that moment. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Wow. So um, one thing we want to take just a moment to distinguish between is the personal heart issue uh, and yeah. then the systemic issue. Um, that... Uh, I doubt that any of us in the room would consider ourselves racist. I hope that's true. Uh, I don't think of myself as a racist. Uh, I do know that I live with implicit bias. In fact, every human being lives with implicit bias. That's just part of who we are. You walk into a room, the first thing you look for is someone you know. If you don't see someone you know, what's the next thing you look for? Someone who looks like you, right? You look for someone like you, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, that again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's human nature. It's the way we're wired. Uh, so it is. It's counterintuitive to move toward the other, to walk into a room and deliberately look for someone who's different than you, and move toward them and engage them in a conversation. Um, so while while I, I'm I'm going to assume that none of us in the room are racist, uh, I also assume that all of us do live with a degree of implicit bias, and um, uh, we've also all grown up. In if you're American, I mean, I assume I'm, I'm, there might be some people who aren't from America, but yeah. if you're from America, you've grown up in a racially charged culture. Mm-hmm. And you've also grown up in a culture where there is systemic racism. So we've got two different things to work with. On the one hand, you've got the individual heart, and how do we help the person to a- address their own implicit bias and move toward the other? And then the other hand, we've got systems in place. Um, and uh, just a couple things on, on, the, on the systemic thing. And here, I, I offend people when I say this, so please bear with me. 
Uh, well, in fact, I just preached last Sunday on, on forgiveness. So, and I told everyone, you've got to forgive to be forgiven. So just go ahead and forgive me right now. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, our nation, and I'm, I'm a patriot. I love our nation. But our nation was designed by white men for white men. Uh, everybody who signed the Declaration of Independence, everyone who signed the Constitution was a white man. Uh, women did not achieve the right to vote in our country until 1920. Uh, blacks got the right to vote. African Americans and Native Americans got the right to vote in 1865, although <laughs> it was in law but not in actuality until the Civil Rights Movement in 1965 when that began to be uh, 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 rectified. Uh, and still work to be done on that. But the point is that from the very beginning, uh, the designers of our systems were white men who were designing it for white men. That's who was favored. And that has continued all the way through, I mean, of course, we're talking about slavery, uh, with, with black folks, uh, then Jim Crow, and uh, the whole civil rights movement and the changes uh, that have been uh, begun in that. Um, there, are, there are fascinating things for that most of us are unaware of. Redlining, does anyone know what redlining is? Okay, well, some of you know that, yeah, yeah, that for, yeah, it's a government program that basically told black people where they could buy homes, yeah, where they had to live. Um, uh, it, also was a, uh, it also affected not just location, but whether or not you could get a loan, how that loan was structured. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, Joe, even if you go back further than that, if you go back to the Homestead Act, that there were, yes. there were no, there was, that was the massive land grab in America where you could get your little stake. And I've, I've got white friends that can trace the wealth of their families back. Yes, to the Homestead Act. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't take long for you if you just do just light research to educate yourself on the yeah. systemic racism of our country, right down to returning veterans, giving subsidies and mm -hmm. GI Bill that wasn't available mm -hmm. to others. You could serve and die for your country, you just couldn't come back and actually live free yeah. and prosperous in it. So there's a long history yeah. of systemic racism that still exists today. Yes, yeah. And uh, yeah, wh one other just little factoid, this is uh, 2017, uh, latest census data. Uh, so median net worth, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, everyone understand that median is half is higher, half is lower. Net worth, your total worth, right? Uh, median net worth for a white family in America is $170,000. For a black family, $17,000. For Hispanic families, $20,000. Now, how do you explain that disparity? And historically, how's it been explained? Historically, the way it's been explained is, well, yep. Say it. Exactly. We they just don't work. We just, lazy. we just we just work harder than you do. And we're smarter than you. And it, right? That's how it's been explained. And, and what there's a name for that. What's that called? It's racism. It's also called white supremacy. Yeah. The idea that we're just inherently better, which that's, yeah, and that's just fundamentally racist thinking. So, so if we're going to reject that explanation of that disparity, what's the cause of that disparity? Well, it's, there's, it's complex because we're talking about uh, generational wealth. And I mean, there's all kinds of things that go into net worth. But fundamentally, the system has been stacked against people of color. And that's part of the thing that has to change. And that's what we're talking about working for justice, uh, going to the criminal justice system. <laughs> Mass incarceration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, blow, it would blow your mind. 
just blow your mind, yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're working on that in Spokane right now. There's a whole group of us working on changing the way that whole system works so that we're, yeah. But that's what we mean by the individual thing. We're working with individuals through relationships to change hearts, but we're also working to change the system and make things more so, equitable. So the key for, you for us, and we'll have question and answer at the end again, the, the key for us is we're all wanting to be part of a solution. Yeah. I would assume I, I, I would assume that about you being in the room this afternoon. You could have been anywhere you chose to be here, which means that you want to be an agent of healing. You want to represent in some facet reconciliation. We were having a difficult time in our marriage about maybe 16 or 17 years ago. It was because my wife needed Jesus. No, let me stop. <laughs> it, it wasn't that. Anybody that knows my wife knows that's not true. I'm the issue in the marriage, trust me. Um, but, but we went to a counselor, and he said, she said to me, what prompted this is we were in, we were in a service, um, in, a, in a church service, and my wife went to an altar and responded to an altar call and came back, and it was, it, the call was just strange. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a struggle or issue that she had. And, and I, she came back, and she's in tears, and I said, babe, what? She's like, just wait for it. I've got to get to God. I'm like, okay. So as we got home, I said, babe, what was that about? She says, it was this and answering. I said, okay. Why didn't you tell me that? She says, because I hate talking to you. And, and I said, okay, we need help. And we went into a counselor and started talking to her. And he began to teach us a skill called listening for understanding and not agreement. And what I had been doing is the minute that I hear information that I don't agree with, like, for instance, something innocuous, like take the, you didn't take the trash out. You never take the trash out. I'd immediately disagree. I do take the trash out sometimes, you know. So, so, th so but, but what, what, what he was saying is, is that we oftentimes check out of a conversation the minute that we don't agree with the dialogue, the information that we're hearing. And this is, in, this is, this is loaded in the racial conversation as well. The minute that I don't hear, the minute that I'm, I, I don't agree, the minute that I feel guilty, that you're trying to make me feel ashamed, I've never been a racist, I was poor too once in my life, you know, all of these things. And so the listening has stopped. We, we're not exchanging, we're not in the same place. Oftentimes the greatest gift that I found, especially in reconciling with my wife in that season, the greatest gift that I could give her is just to be present and listen with my full being to the information. Even if I disagree with every word coming out of her mouth, I was listening to understand what it was she was experiencing of me. And, and that would be very instructive and helpful for us when we seek to have, if you're going to sit down, some of you are going to go back and say, I'm going to find a black man and ask him what his experience was. <laughs> okay, just, just know that you're going to need to equip yourself. You're going to need to listen and stay present. You're going to hear things that are going to be dis disturbing to you. And, and quite frankly, if you're a white American and you actually hear the full vent of a black experience, it ought to crush you. It ought to crush you. Because every one of you that are a white American here benefited from all of these systems. You benefited while it was disadvantaging and crushing and almost extinguishing a race of people. So, so it ought to crush you. It, not, not to the point where you say, oh, I feel bad about that. No, crush you to the point where you can never just see a report or go to your church and say, yeah, check that box. No, you actually would join the fight to say, no, this has got to stop. That's when you know it's impacted you at your core. Yeah. In fact, um, 
Randy told a story yesterday, huh. and and talk about that piece. Cause Why would you want me to talk about that? Oh, come on. We, he, he made a statement. He made a very ignorant statement as a white man um, that, that I took exception to. And I said to him, I said, I've been black my whole life. You've never had to think one day going out into America that you're a white man and what that means to you. And so as we talked about that, it literally, and there's a lot that went into that, but, but as we talked about his experience and his journey, because self-report is the worst kind of report. And it felt like he was doing pretty good. felt like the church was doing pretty good. And I asked him, who did you ask? Did you ask people that look like you, white women and white men who are privileged? Of course they tell you we're doing good. Because everything, as it will, in the, in the African-American culture, we say, as long as you put ranch on everything, you feel good about it. <laughs> Which means you put white on everything. White on the worship, white on the ecclesiology of the church. And then we come and accommodate ourselves to it. And you get to say, look, they're here. No, not really. Our culture is not. Our representation is not there. We're not featured in leadership and empowered and given resources and authority. In fact, one of the things that was said to me at the barbershop, which I let my facial beard grow last winter, just so in Portland I could go to the barbershop, which is on MLK, and have a dose of black culture. So as I'm sitting in the barbershop, one of the guys, I didn't want anybody to know as a pastor, and and finally that word leaked out, and the guy said to me, he says, you're a pastor, I said, what church you pastor? And this is exactly what he said about Beavis and Foursquare, black guy. I said, I pastor the Beavis and Foursquare. He says, on the west side? I said, yeah, that's, like in Portland, the river is the Mason-Dixon line, okay? The haves and have-nots. And he said to me, he says, you pastor at that white church? And I step, he stepped back and he says, they gave you power, authority, and resources. He was like, they serious about it. And I went back and I told Randy about that experience. Now, Randy recently had an encounter at the airport that he told you guys about. The history behind that is, is that we've been having a lot of intense fellowship. <laughs> you know what that is? That's what my wife and I call arguing. We had some intense fellowship about a lot of a lot of important things about our church and what it means when he thinks we've had a good service versus how I interpret it. So we've had those exchanges. And finally, what has happened is, is he has now begun to identify himself with me as a brother. You understand? So, so when he saw those men saying what they said about that African-American man in the airport, it wasn't an issue outside here. It was his brother being assaulted and he was present and addressed it. Does that make sense? And, and I think that has to be what ultimately happens. Brenda Salton McNeil in her work, The Roadmap to Reconciliation, deals with this, these different stages that we go through. And the very first stop on the pathway or road, as she would say, to reconciliation is identification. That, that you see yourself as a brother, sister with the other. Does that make sense? And then it becomes not a politicized issue. It doesn't become a category or a label. That person literally becomes family with you. Beautiful. Thank you, Keith. Um, so just a, a, a we're kind of coming in to land this part of it. We want to open up to discussion. But uh, we want to talk about some practical next steps because you were asking, you know, okay, what do we do, right? And uh, the first thing, and you mentioned Brenda's book, uh, uh, she talks in there about contact theory and how important relationships are. That uh, it's hard to hate up close, isn't it? 
uh, when you really get to know someone, as long as we can put the other person at arm's length, as long as we can dehumanize them with a label, but when you become friends with people who are different than you, uh, when there's that sense of identification, uh, that, that is transformative. So one of the things that we're doing in Spokane right now um, is uh, we are, uh, for the last couple of years, we've been working real hard at this, is getting diverse small groups together and we're trying to do it particularly with Christian leaders, but I'm trying to engage the white pastors in my town to be part of this conversation, mm. right? Because we're going to change the church. It's got to start with a leader, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. What's that? He does. Yes. I know your son. Yes. Yes. Yes, your son works at Teen Challenge. Yes. Awesome. That's, well, that's fun. We'll have to talk afterwards. So, so we're starting these groups, and, uh, uh, and they're reading groups. And, again, very diverse. Uh, and, uh, and the idea is we're going we're to become friends. We're going to hear each other's stories. And uh, I, I wish I had a little – we have a video we've made from one of the groups that's just very, very powerful as the people tell their stories about how, uh, how they've grown to understand each other. They've become friends for life. Uh, you know, they're – I mean, they're, they are identified. They are bonded. And that's a transformative thing in this is just that simple relational deal. I also wish I could bring all of you into my group. I have a group of eight people, uh, four people of color, four white people. Uh, mixed gender. I mean, it's a, it's a very. Uh, uh, I, I've got some. I, I've got some guys that would wear MAGA hats. I've, you know, I've got one lady who's left of the Democrats. Uh, I mean, uh, no. I mean, she she told me she says I never met a Democrat. She used to be a, a broadcaster, famous broadcaster in San Francisco. Uh, she's a lovely Asian yeah. lady, uh, Korean, and she said I never met a Democrat until I moved to Spokane. I never saw a gun shop until I moved to Spokane, you know. And so uh, I wish you could be in these meetings because it's that listen yeah. for understanding, and we light it up. I mean, whoo, So, So the idea fun. in social science, the idea of contact theory is that you take people from diverse backgrounds and oftentimes even opposing one another. You see this work done a lot of times yeah. in the inner city and urban environments with uh, gang interventionists who bring gangs together put them in proximity of one another, have them engage in activities together, and as they have appropriate contact with one another, they begin, to all of the biases get confronted, all of those type of um, barriers seem to be attacked as they're in proximity with one another. Yeah. Obviously, this is facilitated, it's guided, but what happens is, is they begin to see themselves in one another. And when that begins to happen, this is why I think you and I have to be catalysts not just waiting for conversations to happen, but actually moving toward form it. If it's not going on in your city, you can be the catalyst to form it. You can get all kinds of resources to help people have you um, to do some contact work with, with various groups. It could be with the polarization that we're experiencing in our country now, we have to be bridge builders like never before. But we're ill-equipped because we seem to we, – we lead first and foremost – with a theological bent, and we don't have any social science understanding of how people interact and, and navigate these type of issues together. So you can't just bring your Bible and say, well, the Holy Ghost is going to do it. it that, that doesn't work, just so you know. You're going to need more in your toolbox than just that. 
So relationships are one thing. That's that's correct. Uh, a second thing that we encourage people to do is to educate themselves. So our, our groups are all reading groups, and we're doing multiple books from different persuasions and, and per points of view. Um, and we're going to just pass out a little reading list here that uh, uh, we put together. And uh, there are certainly many other books that could go on here, but if you're looking for a place to start in terms of educating yourself, uh, here's, some, here's some great resources, and we'll just pass those around. But uh, this has been very, very – thank you, Jim. Thank yeah. you, Gary. Um, this has been very, very helpful for me personally, is uh, not only to have friends whose personal stories I know, but to educate myself on the larger story, the larger history of what's gone on. And um, I was, uh, I subscribed to The Black Lens, which is the local Spokane black newspaper, comes out monthly. And uh, I <laughs> love it. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, yeah, in fact, I was the first white subscriber uh, <laughs> in, Spokane. in Spokane. A publisher told me that. She's a, she's a friend of mine, and uh, she's a, a, a lovely uh, uh, black lesbian. And uh, so we have had multiple delightful conversations, mm -hmm. you know, just uh, as, as we're becoming friends. But anyway, my, uh, my Black Lens newspaper got accidentally delivered to my neighbor. <laughs> and so he... And he's got three little grade school girls, you know, uh, just real cute little girls. And they, so they were poring over the Black Lens newspaper. And uh, he walked in and said, what's this? And, and looked at it. And then saw, of course, it was addressed to me. So he brought it up and gave it to me. And, uh, and I told him why I subscribe, right, that this is part of my ongoing education. You know, that I, I want to I understand mm -hmm. how the black people in my community feel and think and how they look at things. And uh, so this is just one of many ways I did it. So, so I told him that. And I also uh, just happened, I had just gotten back from um, I, uh, last year I got to go on the Congressional Civil Rights Pilgrimage with a whole bunch of Congress people. And, you know, you guys just toured a bunch of these sites, didn't you, the civil rights sites uh, in the South. Very, very powerful. So I, I told him that. And this was his comment. And this is such a vintage white comment. Uh, pardon me, all you white folks. But uh, he, he said uh, – you know, we looked at all, toured all these historical sites. He says, well, he says, uh, we got to let go of the past. we got to move forward into the future. He says, there's a reason why the windshield is big and the rearview mirror is small. And, uh, and again, it's that, it's that discomfort with our past, isn't it? We hate to face that. And my response to him was, I said, yeah, you're, you're right. we got to have that big, we got to be looking forward. I says, but the rearview mirror is there for a reason. Because if you, if you don't look behind you, you're going to be in trouble sometimes because you don't know context. You don't know where you are and what's around you. And I, and I just told him, I said, the reality is, as I said, I, I get it. He's my friend. Justin's my friend. I said, Justin, I get it. I would rather forget the past, too, because it's awful. But if we're going to understand how people feel today, we've got to understand this whole context back here. So that's why we give you this reading list is not only do you need to hear from individual people, but you need to educate yourself on the big story. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty terrible story. So we got 15 minutes left. I would love for you to sort of own the room. And, um, and here's, what I, here's what I would caution you against. Without proximity, you can't have appropriate empathy. If you don't have proximity, I don't know what it's like to be a woman in the workplace. So without proper proximity to an issue or a person or – or a, uh, you know, the journey of, an, of, a, of a different minority group, you can't have appropriate empathy. So be careful of general statements and that type of thing in the room. 
Uh, we're going to already cover the room with grace in case something ignorant is said. Okay. <laughs> we're going to reserve the right to also educate you on how better to state that <laughs> in the future. Um, but but I would love for it. I'd love to hear um, some feedback from you guys. I mean, it's it, an hour is like no time. So it's it's just scratching the surface. I feel like we didn't even get to in-group or out-group theory. Um, some of the things that I want to talk to you about, we didn't get to confirmation bias, which is constantly getting information that supports what you already believe, which is why I love that Joe um, took the step to go get a newspaper that didn't come from white America, that came from a different perspective. So if you're constantly getting information that supports what you already believe, what you already think to be true, I would tell you to venture outside that world. Find some other people. Get off Facebook. Their, <laughs> their, their algorithms are keeping you right where you need to be. Okay? 